It's episode three of LSQ. Hey, it's Jenny LSQ, and uh, this is my podcast featuring monthly interviews with musicians, songwriters, producers, you know, music people in general. Uh, If you didn't get to check out either of the first two episodes, they're available for you to download at your leisure, and please do subscribe if you like what you hear. Episode one was a conversation with Amelia Meath of Sylvanesso, plus from my interview archive, a bit of a 19-year-old Beyonce. And then episode two had Aaron Dessner of The National, as well as an archival clip of Missy Elliott. This month, you'll hear my conversation with the exceptionally cool Britt Daniel, frontman for indie rock giant Spoon, who last year made one of my favorite albums of 2017, and I think one of the best in their catalog, in the form of their ninth studio LP, Hot Thoughts. Um, And in this conversation that you're about to hear, Britt and I talk at greater length than I ever had the chance to interview him before, uh, about his childhood growing up and first becoming interested in playing music, about his high school band, The Zygotes, about an era in the late 90s when he thought about giving it all up, and a whole bunch more. Plus, after the interview with Brit, uh, you'll get from the archive some Lars Ulrich of Metallica talking about why the band decided to sue Napster in the year 2000 when peer-to-peer file sharing was exploding. More about that coming up right now, Brit Daniel on LSQ. Hey, are we on? We are. Awesome. It's happening. So we're here in New York at the Hotel Rivington where uh, Spoon are in town playing a few shows this week in the area. Have you ever lived in New York? Closest I came to living in New York was, well, I've, I've come for months at a time. And the last time was a couple years ago. But uh, in 1999, I lived here for five months. All right. And, what, uh, what part of town were you in? I started out in Long Island City. And uh, it was just like Beirut at that time. <laughs> it, it was uh, not pretty. Yeah. But it was what, cheap. What brought and you here for five months? I used to try to always get out of Austin for the summer. And um, I think the summer before that I was in Chicago. I mean, I didn't necessarily go to places that were a lot cooler right you know <laughs> it was a brutally hot summer in the summer of 99 but um yeah i just uh came up here to get away for a bit and to write and but i ended up not writing much because i was you know hustling trying to make money that was after the first spoon record yeah it was after the second spoon record we we had been we put out a record on Electra in 98 and we got dropped almost immediately afterwards and this was the summer after that right yeah Wow. So yeah. So that must have been an interesting period of reappraisal for you. Right. We had an early version of Girls Can Tell done, and right as soon as we finished it, I went to New York and tried to find someone to put it out while I was up here. Wow. So what did you think? I mean, if you can remember what your frame of mind was at that time, what did you think the future of Spoon was? I didn't know if it was going to continue to exist. I kind of felt like we. might be out of the record uh record making club forever <laughs> but uh or at least not, unless it was self released or something um and i was you know i was a bit bummed right then i didn't know i was pretty broke and uh and i felt like we had had a lot of promise and potential that that um didn't really work out on those first two records i thought the record well the second record at least was quite good yeah. And, uh, 
but but that you know not a lot of people the business hadn't worked out for us you know but were the were all the eggs in that basket by then i mean were you were counting on this band or being in a band to work yeah we, that's what i was i quit my job to go do yeah and then once i once we got dropped, then I tried to go get that job back. I found out that wasn't possible. <laughs> what was the job? It was a, I was working at a video game company before, okay. which was just like a, the most, it was the greatest job, making what? sound effects for video <laughs> games. It was amazing. A really good culture at that company, so it was just sort of, everybody was, it was pretty loose. and. So making sound effects like Foley-type sound effects? Sometimes that, that, sometimes just manipulating sound effects from sound effects CDs, you know, oh. ex- lots of explosions. Cool. Engines. Did you, and how had you gotten that job? I mean, were you, did you study anything like that? or I studied audio production at school. And then when I, right out of school, I got that job. They, I think that, you know, people like to hire people that are right out of school yeah. and uh, mold them. Yeah. And so I, I applied right at the right time. And they, you know, there certainly were more qualified people probably in Austin, but I think they liked the idea that I had just gotten out of school. And so that was during... While right after you got out of UT, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but when you study, when you decided to enroll in engineering in college, was that at that point were you already kind of hoping to parlay that into the legitimate version of starting a band? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the whole the whole idea of you know going of school at all was just to bide my time, you know, until I could get a band together that that I felt could do something, you know. Right. Uh, so the whole time I was in school, I was trying to put together bands, finally put together a couple bands. And that was what I really wanted to do. And, um, you know, and I definitely, that's where my energies went. And what was, what were your hero bands at that time? Or who were, who was doing it at a level that seemed achievable, but awesome when you were just sort of fresh out of college and fresh out of college. I mean, going into college, the Pixies were my favorite band. Velvet Underground. Oh, they, I guess they weren't really doing it right, right. then. <laughs> but, but, right, but the Pixies, yeah, yeah the were, Pix- I'm sure for a lot of people from our generation, like, yeah, the example of how you could be weirdos. And The Cure, I mean, I know you're a yeah. fan of The Cure. I feel like, man, I feel like The Cure and that unique place they occupied uh, as an arena-level band from, you know, the underground sort of sensibility... It's been lost to time. I don't think people nowadays adequately appreciate the Beastie Boys are in that same category for me, where it's like, why are we not talking more about The Cure and Beastie Boys? Right. Uh, but Those were big, big bands, and they were weird bands that, well, the Beastie Boys came out with that hit, but, but when they started with Paul's Boutique, and yeah, they made some weird records that were really, really creative, and, and they their popularity took a nosedive, and then they came back. So, so what was the first weird music that you liked as a kid what was the first thing you found that felt like a discovery that wasn't what everyone else was into um well the art of noise maybe that was okay. something that uh yeah that's pretty deep that's a deep <laughs> cut right there well that was that was uh there was a big video you know at that time and now, the, i don't even know anything about the art of noise yeah close close to the edit it was a like an award-winning video that was really bizarre and had this little girl that was like leading these men around with a sausage and then they were beating on pianos. And the first time I saw it, I was just like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. This is, I thought it, I was turned off by it. I thought it was uh, too much. But then the second time I heard it, I was like, well, maybe that's kind of cool. This whole, the whole lyric of the song was, hey, just, hey, 
hey. It was just a sample. It wasn't like the Lumineers or whatever. <laughs> um, it was cool. And uh, yeah, second time, then the third time I was like, okay, there's something to this. And yeah, it was... Uh, and that, got, was the beginning of a, that was the beginning of a... That was what I called New Wave, yeah. Right. Yeah. There weren't a lot of ways that New Wave could get to Temple, Texas. Um, and I didn't get the radio stations from Austin, so... Um, there were a few things that we latched onto that we that we could find. You know? How did New Wave get to Temple, Texas? Um, or we, just weird music? Oddly enough, there was a real, really good record store that... Um, the... the, the the buyers there were had really good taste, and they would um, like certain things they liked, like the Cramps. There were always Cramps records there. There were Cocteau Twins records there. Uh, there were New Order records there. So and we, did you did playing music come before digging into this this music discovery thing? I mean, did one precipitate the other? Where you were like, I want to try and start making this because you were listening to shit. Uh, I kind of wanted to make records ever since I was seven or eight. You know, putting once I could finally put the needle on the record and I had something to do that was, I was a pretty bored kid. And so uh, once I could do that, that was solved a lot of the boredom problem, listening to records and looking at the record covers and just sitting there on the living room floor staring. And so that was kind of the, where I was the first time I was like, wow, this would be cool. Would and what be. were those records before? Um, my dad's records. So uh, Rolling Stones, the the Bee Gees was a big one for me. They were really big right then. Um, Paul McCartney. Were there thing? Was, the, was there music that was your parents' music as a kid that you kind of thought you didn't like? That as you've gotten older, you realize turns out to have been very important in terms of your musical evolution. Yeah, my mom would play the Supremes, and I didn't really like the Supremes at that moment. And uh, you know, ten years later, I was. You know, in love, trying to write a song like The Supremes. You know? <laughs> uh, there are a lot of bands like that. I mean, I, I used to I used to just hate Zydeco music and, and think it was the most boring adult crap, you know. <laughs> but, and I love it now. It's kind of a psychedelic experience for me to go see live Zydeco music. So you, so, so you say that you, you thought about making music from the, from the time that you started, you know, putting the needle on the record. Yeah. Um, and... So then what was, you know, how did that kind of evolve into actually playing guitar and learning to... It, it kind of like... Because um, you didn't start really playing until you were sort of in your teens. Or yeah. It, it was a thing that I just would think about, but I didn't really do anything about when I was in middle school. I was, you know, and then early, even, even early high school, I didn't really make any um, effort to to learn how to do this thing. And then at some point I realized, you know, if I really want to make these records and I'm this obsessed with music, then, well, maybe I should learn how to write a song. And if I'm going to write a, learn how to write a song, then I should probably learn how to play an instrument. And the yeah. first instrument I got was a bass, which you can't really... You can write on a bass, I guess. I could do it now, but it's not. it doesn't really lend itself to that. But I was always listening... When I would listen to records, I was focusing on the bass lines. So that was what... Um, that's what I wanted to play. And then did you take lessons, or, or were you self-taught? No, right. never took lessons, and eventually I borrowed a friend's acoustic guitar, and that's when, you know, I would sit down and put on uh, records and, and uh, teach myself to play rudimentary guitar that way. Yeah. And what, what, what were the earliest songs? What do you remember about the earliest songs? First song I really learned how to play was a not-so-great song by the Beatles called I Need You, <laughs> off of okay. the help 
soundtrack. But that was like I had the, this little Beatles book, right. this little, uh, and that was the one that had the chords that I could play. It seemed real easy. Um, but the Ramones, would, you know, you could play along to those records. But when you were starting to write your own songs, I mean, what 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 did those sound like? Um, ripoffs of uh, the Beatles and the Ramones <laughs> and the, Pixie, the Pixies yeah. and. and uh, yeah, I remember trying to rip off um, Caribou by the Pixies. That was one of the first songs I wrote. And I have no idea what it was about, or I can't. I just remember it being based on that vibe, and I brought it to my band in my high school band, and they they said it was a little mellow. <laughs> what was your high school band called? It was called the Zygotes. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, and I mean, is there anything about the experience of of playing in in say a high school band? Uh, or writing those early songs that that uh, you retain still, kind of. I mean, in terms of your uh, your feeling about it or your approach to it. Mm, I think maybe just figuring out that it took sometimes was going to take a long time. You know, um, not every song comes to you like that. A lot of songs, a lot of the songs I've written, develop over months. You know, and um, it really once I got my first four track, which was. I was maybe, I think I was 18. That was when it really started to be able to, it helps to um, be able to build up a song. That was how I would end up learning to write a song was by building one up, you know, and having, you put down some music and then you have different shots at coming up with a vocal and then that kind of becomes the the lyrics and the vocal melody line and all that. So, uh, yeah, it just, uh, I guess what I learned was that it's going to take going to take a second and, and all those early songs I wrote were, were garbage you know so when I see you know when I later became friends with um, Connor Oberst and he was 17 writing these songs with amazing lyrics and quite good chords and that did bizarre little things I was taken aback like how could he be doing this at this age you know but he's been he was doing it since he was 10 you know yeah. or whatever it was you know? I mean I guess the 10,000 hours thing that classic yeah. Yeah, that's it. that is what Beatles it is. Thing is, so when do you, you know, whether or not it correlates to actual ten thousand albums, when do you feel like evaluating things fairly? You hit your stride as a, as a songwriter. You started to have confidence and and feel sort of excited about what you were making. Uh, by the my second band was called Skellington, and there was um, there were some good songs in that band. Not all of them, but there were some good ones. And one of them, a couple of them, Spoon even did. Two or three of them Spoon did. Um, and there was a song on a, off the Soft Effects EP called Lost Leaders, which, which Skellington did first. And that was a, I, was, I knew that was good. Right. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I know that, that, you know, in terms of the band's profile and also from kind of a songwriting standpoint, Girls Can Tell was sort of a watershed creative moment for Spoon. What do you think was that, that was the source of that kind of being a, a pivotal creative moment? Girls Can Tell? Yeah. Um, well, so yeah, between the second album, Series of Sneaks, and Girls Can Tell, the third album, that's when we got we got dropped. I moved to New York City. Right. I started listening to The Supremes. Started trying to write like The Supremes. And uh, it was uh, Get Happy by Elvis Costello was a big one. That, that You know, I could see where what he had been doing was new wave and sort of punk rock. And then he sort of got on this thing that was very classic and... Motown sounding and and I really 
was turned on by that idea. Before before girls can tell, we ran away from reverb, we ran away from room sounds. Everything was just dry, and I trying to be cool. Didn't use much piano. If we did, we buried it. Um, but then at that point, then I was like, okay, but I'm but I love Marvin Gaye, and I love um, Stevie Wonder, and uh, I love Credence, and why not use some of these sounds and instruments that. Uh, that they would use, you know? Right. Why, why play by these cool rules? Yeah, know? yeah. I mean, I guess it was less, there was less adventure in what is now known as indie rock uh -huh. then. Yeah, it's, right. Yeah, it seemed like it had sort of cornered, backed itself into a corner with what was okay to do, what was cool to do. And I was, you know, I didn't see any point. We hadn't really been accepted by that world. I guess maybe Sears of Sneaks was our most indie rock sounding record, you know, and it came out on, on Electra. So, I mean, getting dropped, you know, must have been in, in that way kind of liberating because suddenly you're like, well, maybe we don't know what people want and should just do. I thought maybe the band would or should break up, but, uh, and I, we definitely didn't have any prospects. We didn't have anything, any tours or anything going on, but I kind of, I just, but we had local shows and I kept coming up with more songs just kind of for myself, you know? And, uh, and I was like, well, we've got a show next week. Maybe we could play this thing. And then before we knew it, we had eight songs and we recorded them real quick. And, and, uh, even though I thought maybe the band should break up and even now looking back, it looks like that might've been the right m move, you know, strategically at that moment, you know, because we had like a manager and a booking agent that were both, and, a, and also a, a lawyer that were all like, well, I don't know if we can do anything with this band name anymore. Maybe you should start something new. And I, and I saw the point in that, but we just kept doing it. And um, and once we made that record, I was like, well, yeah, but this band made this record, so what, let's put it out, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously, thank God it didn't break up because right. it would have it would have stopped just before it started to get really good. Right, right. What other albums, you know, between then and Hot Thoughts have felt, uh, a la Girls Can Tell, like kind of a significant creative moment for you? Mm. I mean, obviously they're all awesome and you love yeah. them all equally. <laughs> uh, I felt like, um, there were a few, you know, I felt like uh, Kill the Moonlight was a, was a big step away from Girls Can Tell. It was weirder and more, way more... Um, original it was less motown less classic but it was had some great ideas in there ideas that you know i was lucky to come up with and uh then maybe gaga Ga had a couple things that were pushing um and then maybe this last record you know yeah so what were your first live performances like little brit in the Zygotes. What, <laughs> little Brit. What, what was Little Brit the front man like? Um, snotty. What was your first show you ever played? We played, I think we played a Battle of the Bands was our first show. And we won, I think. Yeah, we won. Yeah, you yeah. did. <laughs> we won. <laughs> we won. Um, we were a cover band at that point still. You know, we did a Led Zeppelin song, maybe a Jimi Hendrix song, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't, I was, I felt pretty, pretty natural at it, but, um, I think it took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do on stage and how to have fun on stage. Um, what, what, uh, performers, uh, whether in bands or as, as solo artists or 
the mo to you the most impressive in terms of their ability to command the stage? Well, Bruce Springsteen, um, Prince, those are the best. Yeah, the <laughs> least, kind of the, the least, that's, least self-conscious, probably ultimately. Yeah, the ones that you can feel. Uh, you know, you watch them and you kind of feel like this is the greatest warmth of humanity watching this. You know, <laughs> that that's the the ultimate feeling when you go see Stevie Wonder, that kind of thing. Right. The feeling of love and positivity. You know. I don't know. That's that's the greatest I ever feel when going to see shows. Is that sort of warmth? You know? Do you remember sort of spiritual in a way? Like, know? did you go to concerts as a kid, or you would you go up and see? What was that like? I mean, was there were there shows, shows to see when you were in Temple, or did you have to go up to Austin to see to see shows? You had to go to Austin. Yeah, I remember Crocus did come to Temple. <laughs> that was like the big show. Crocus. I didn't go. <laughs> Shows just didn't come to Temple. Um, but yeah, when I was old enough to get in a car and get down there, um, I went to go see... Um, I remember seeing Flaming Lips open for the Butthole Surfers on a Thursday night at the Ritz in Austin. Um, go see Iggy Pop. Yeah, the Smithereens. We were into them a lot. And so what, you had a couple... You had some pals who would... You would pile into a car? Or, yeah. 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 And go, would you stay overnight in Austin? No, I wasn't allowed. <laughs> no. Certainly wasn't allowed. No, we had to come right back. Right, right. It was. We were lucky. We got to be gone for whatever four hours. Or whatever. <laughs> but the Ramones. You... We go to see, go to see them all the time. You know, because they were always coming through Austin. Right. You know? Where would the Ramones play? At the at back all? room. Do you know the back room? It's a. I don't think so. That's where mo I saw most of the shows. That's where I saw Iggy Pop and Jane's Addiction and the Smithereens and. Is it all still the there? It's. Uh, I feel no. like I would have been there at a South by if it was. I don't think it's still there. It was there not too long ago, but it was a. It's basic. It was a metal bar. All the local metal bands would play there, and then they would also have touring bands come through. And it couldn't have been more than five hundred capacity. Right. Know? So like, the Ramones were coming in and playing to these clubs that were the size of what uh, the Bowery Ballroom. You know. Oh wow! It just seems like it would be. Looking yeah. back, it seemed like that was an awful small place for all these bands to be playing. And when you were starting to play music, hopping all over the place here, if you don't mind, um, were your parents into the, into the I'm going to play music for a living thing, or they, they were pretty chill with it? Um, they, they were pretty hands-off about it. Right. Um, I still have this letter from my dad and stepmother from when... Uh, when we got dropped from Electra, and they wrote this letter, they sent me a postcard that says something like, "When one door closes, another one opens." And the, inside the the card, it said something like, "It really is time to move on." <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but something else will happen good. You know, um, and I still got that somewhere. Um, there was a yeah. So they were generally supportive, but I was young, and once it got to a point where. Um, where I was, you know, 28, 29, 30, and nothing was happening, they were, they would suggest maybe um, I look for something else. Yeah. Right. And was that any, was that something you ever took? Was there a part in your brain where you were making a backup plan? Or what would the backup plan, what would you have done? I, not really. I mean, I was, I was just trying to make rent, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, 
so I was substitute teaching. This is when I couldn't get the video game job back. I was substitute teaching. I was um, doing temp work, and um, I worked at a like a very early, you know, internet company thing where I was like basically typing, stripping code out of one thing and putting it into another, making you know fifteen dollars an hour kind of thing. Um, this is once you went back to Austin and weren't in the yeah. city anymore. Yeah. 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 That was the last straight job I had. And then you, once Girls Can Tell was finished and, and getting ready to come out, you, you, that was, that. Once, once we had, once Mac said that he wanted to put out Girls Can Tell, um, I finally, I was, I got called into that job, that internet job, because I was constantly going out to my car and taking naps or being on the phone talking to merge or whatever right. I was always right. away from my desk and I got called in and and he was right like I wasn't doing the job well and uh, the next day I quit I was just like I can't do it I went out and bought my very first cell phone and I went and took uh, a tour Connor had been asking me to open for him on a tour and uh, and I was like I don't know if I can do it I got this job and so I just said okay I'm gonna go for it I don't know how I'm gonna make my rent for the next two months but I'm gonna somehow this is gonna work and I kind of felt like I was jumping off a cliff, but uh, I knew I had to do it, you know. And you went, it was a Spoon tour with It was Brad just Eyes. me. It was just you. Yeah. Yeah, Spoon, we couldn't have, you know, there was no Spoon, really, you know. You've mentioned Connor a couple of times, um, one of my favorite artists as well, but what other, what other artists sort of from, you know, your era that you've crossed paths with over the years are you most sort of impressed by their their skills? Well, I think Hamilton Lighthouse was great. I love his voice. I love his songwriting. Um, what kind of thing tends to grab your attention nowadays when you hear it uh, as far as new music goes? Chords and melodies. Same as it ever was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. That's always the most emotional part of music for me. I don't even, sometimes I don't, you know, and lots of times when you go see live music, you know when you've heard a great song, but you may not have heard a single word, you know? They're up there singing words, but you can't really make it out. But you know when it's a good song. Do you find that you have to be in a particular frame of mind when you're writing to be, you know, receptive to your own ideas? To my own ideas? Yeah, I mean, do you, or, or just receptive in general to the spirit of, of a, letting a song come? Yeah, it helps to be in a good frame of mind. It helps to be healthy. It helps to, you know, have all your chemicals in the right zone. Ratio, ratios, yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying I haven't written good songs when I was depressed. I have a couple times, but I think that that's, that's more the exception. Usually I, I write better when I feel good and when I feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's really about songwriting for me is just sort of, it's kind of like sitting down, getting, catching a mood and sort of just speaking in tongues for a sec, you know, and if I, and I record it and I listen back and if I, the speaking in tongues sounded good, that was, that's a hit, you know, um, and I'll, and I'll work on it. But it's really about sort of just catching that wave, you know, and not being too in your head about it, you know. And the speaking in tongues part is the the melody without real lyrics yet. Is that yeah? It's kind just of this thing? sort of yeah, kind of just doing something and not knowing why, not knowing where it is going, and just sort of be poking around in the dark and like, okay, I got this chord. I'm going to sing this. I don't know what what I'm doing. I'm just kind of you know. Just kind of letting the, trying to feel the spirit for a second, you know? Like, I turned my camera on was one like that. 
Now, I still don't know what I turn my camera on means, but it, it feels good to me. But that was just kind of when I sat down on the floor and I remember playing, writing a song on one string, you know, and uh, I had the beat more in mind than anything else. Dun, 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 you know, and uh, that was just the words that came. I turned my camera on. I don't know where it came from, but I liked it okay, you know. Sometimes those words just aren't going to do, and then you got to fill them in with, with other ones. Is it is it ever the case that a song is written about, a, you know, a, that the inspiration for the song is what is the subject of the lyrics? That you, yeah. that you sit down and write about a yeah, specific where, where topic? Yeah, specifically have it in mind. Yeah. yeah. Around Kill the Moonlight, I, I read this interview with Chuck D where he was saying that all of his songs started with a title. You know, Welcome to the Terradome, or... Uh, don't believe the hype or whatever. All these things started as a song title, and I thought, I mean, that's that's a good idea. So I started writing down song titles, and then I would start with the speaking. Yeah, I would still do the same speaking in tongues process, but I would have a lyric, one lyric, and then just kind of go from there and see what happened. Uh, you got to feel it was like that. Uh, all the pretty girls go to the city. Small stakes, but all, a lot of songs right around that era. Yeah. Do you think that your perspective as a lyricist has has uh changed a lot or remained fairly consistent since uh since boone started have you noticed kind of it's changed a lot and that was another part of the girls can tell story that i didn't mention was that that was right when for the first time i i said not only is it okay to play with reverb and pianos and uh, vibraphones but um Open your, opening yourself up and being a little more honest and vulnerable. I was appreciating that aspect of a lot of songwriting. The kinks, um, I felt like, were great at that. And I came along around real late to the kinks and was just getting obsessed with them right before Girls Can Tell. And, um, yeah, so the, for the first time... Before that, it was a little bit, you know, lyrics were just sort of like, well, whatever doesn't embarrass me to sing... You know, or something that's colorful, or maybe I can rip off wire, a, a wire lip lyric, and that'll be the song, you know. Um, and then, but then uh, around then, I started thinking, well, maybe I could just actually write about my life, or write about how, um, you know, uh, write about people that feel like life has gotten away from them. Or mm. um, That's the kinks for you, right? Yeah. The character studies. Yeah. Lines in the Suit was like that song off of Girls Can Tell, that was a big one for me. Because I felt super vulnerable. I felt like, I felt washed up, you know. And uh, that's where that lyric came from. How come I feel so washed up at such a tender age? Yeah. What, so what were the, what was the big, what album by the Kings did you connect with the hardest when you were first? Like, where did I, where has this been all my life? Face to Face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Something Else mm-hmm. were probably the two biggest ones. Yeah, I got something else first, yeah. and then face-to-face, yeah. and then I was like, oh, shit, yeah, Village Green, they're right about that one, right. too. Right, and then, yeah, then I got Village Green, and yeah, there's a whole, just to be discovering all that music, I think it was the Rushmore soundtrack that turned me onto the Kinks, and I was like, I had a, a Kinks Greatest Hits record, and, and I listened to it a few times, but when that happened, and then there was this weird thing where this website would, if you signed up for the website, you could get a free album, and I was completely broke, so I just kept signing up with a different address each time, and I got a bunch of free Kinks albums that way. It's a great program. Um, I think that's all I've got for you, Britt. I... So much. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks. It's good to talk to you, as always.
While Spoon have a handful of U.S. shows on the horizon in early 2018, plus trips to South America and Europe, you can stay in the loop over at SpoonTheBand.com. Coming up next on LSQ, it's an interview from the year 2000 uh, that I did over the phone while I was working at Rolling Stone full-time with Lars Ulrich of Metallica, uh, a conversation we had just five days after Metallica had filed a lawsuit against peer-to-peer file-sharing service Napster, as well as a couple of the universities that they deemed guilty of having helped spread Napster's popularity. You may remember, if you uh, were paying attention at that time, that Dr. Dre was also part of an initial crop of artists uh, trying to figure out how they could deal with this emerging, they thought, threat to their, um, well, artistic and financial security. And as you'll hear, Lars makes it clear that, you know, for them, for Metallica, it wasn't about money because they certainly had enough of it, um, but was more about kind of raising the discussion and engendering debate on the topic of what do we think music is worth and, um, you know, don't we think we ought to be paying for it? And also, I just think it's interesting, you know, listening to that Britt Daniel interview, he talked so much about that summer in 1999 when he almost gave it all up. And can you imagine if he had? And I just think uh, with this Lars interview as well, I enjoy looking back at these moments when it seemed like something, um, I don't know, so do or die was happening for an artist. And if you zoom out in the big picture, you know, Metallica are still exceptionally successful Um, And thank God Spoon didn't break up. Anyway, let's listen uh, to Lars Ulrich. Uh, We join the conversation where Lars is basically explaining why Metallica decided to take up this fight at the time. You know, this isn't just about, you know, Metallica's masters. This is about the way that people have access to music, the way that people deal with music, the way they choose to play and interact with music. Yeah, I'm not going to necessarily, you know, say with a complete straight face, you know, this is on behalf of everybody else, because, you know, I think that what we're hearing now is that, you know, there are a lot of other people out there that are starting to sort of feel that they want to join us in this. But it is about, you know, nobody else is going to take the first fucking step. Well, you know, we've never been afraid of, <laughs> of taking that first step in almost anything. So it's like, well, let us fucking start this and see what happens and try and get a debate going and try and sort of raise the awareness and... The hardest thing about it, and, and I think one of the most interesting thing about the five days now since we served Napster in these uh, universities with the suit, you know, the feedback we get from people and so on is really the level of ignorance and the level of unawareness of what all this stuff really means. You know, reading, you know, some, you know, comments and, you know, fuck Metallica and boycott Metallica and this and, you know, Metallica has enough money and you know, blah, 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 and of course, you know, to, to sort of the ignorant and the uneducated about this, you know, it's very easy to see you know, somebody sits and goes, this is about, you know, dollars and cents, but it's about so much more, and it's sort of like this whole fucking tidal wave of stuff in its wake, but we really felt that the fact that there's a company called Napster there, and that what they provide a service you know, for people to sit there and download and make their own CDs of first-generation digital masters, that is just, that's unacceptable. Now, I mean, I understand what you're saying when you say it's not about dollars and cents, and, and you know, is is it to your mind a more an issue of artistic control then, or what what's at the heart of the issue to you? Because I'm sure you can understand, you know, from how from the kid's point of view it would be like, well, what, they just don't want us to get them for free? What's the problem? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, 
I'm probably about as open-minded and as liberal as, as so you're going to find anywhere in contemporary America in terms of tolerance and not judging other people and, and all this type of stuff. But, you know, so I'm going to say this with that preliminary is that, you know, this is as close to anything that I deal with on a daily basis that is sort of about right and wrong. I hate using those type of phrases because to me, there's a lot of, you know, more to most things than just a right or wrong. But, you know, I mean, this is as close as you get in our world to, to theft. <laughs> right. And um, people are basically stealing Metallica music right. and the story. So one of the greatest analogies that I've come up with in the last couple of days is that people sit, you know, sit there and go, you know, why shouldn't their music be available for free on the Internet? You know, what I say to that is, why don't you, instead of downloading it from the Internet, why don't you go down to your neighborhood tower record store and why don't you walk in there and take the Metallica CD and walk out of there and see if you think that constitutes theft or not. Right. Why, should, why shouldn't tower records just open the doors 24-7 and, you know, remove the cash registers? Let people go in there. I mean, it's the same thing, basically. It's just through a different vehicle. I mean, I guess I guess the question, you know, a, a, an issue is, you know, if there weren't the, the system in place that there is where, you know, in order for an artist to be able to put out records, they need to get money. And in order for an, a company to be able to put out records, they need to have people pay for those records. Um, you know, oh, la di da, in some ideal world, music would be free, and so would all art, and so would books. Why, and why should it be limited to music? <laughs> That's my whole thing, is like, when I read, you know, a guy on the internet saying, like, I want to have access to Metallica's, okay, fine, what do you do for a living? Okay, I'm a plumber. Okay, well, here's the story. I'll give you my music for free. You come over and fix my fucking toilet for free. Why should... Okay, the next guy that downloads a Metallica song, he's a car mechanic, okay? We'll make a deal. Here, have fucking Enter Sandman come over and fix my car. Do you know what I mean? Why should art music be the only commerce that should um, have this thing about being available to everybody for free? I mean, that's what I'm saying. You start getting into these, like huge analytical things that just become like domino effect. It becomes about like the whole music industry, but you know, okay, we've sold a gazillion records and we're fortunate enough to not have any financial issues, but you know, without sort of putting myself on too high of a horse here, I will say that, you know, who this really affects the most is not the one in a million bands that are fortunate enough to be successful like Metallica but all the sick, struggling singers and songwriters and bands out there in all these places that don't have uh, the fortune of, of being successful and that have to, that rely on these small amounts of income that come from their publishing, come from owning their own masters, and come from selling, you know, 5,000 records or whatever that can just about pay for the bills that it takes to create this music. And I feel uncomfortable, you know, with all due respect to people I admire you know, I'm not Tom Morello, <laughs> and I don't want to be that type of thing. You know, Rage Against the Machine are one of my favorite bands. So I feel a little weird about sort of taking on this sort of crusade type of thing. But there is certainly an element about that, that, you know, we are a band who can afford the legal fees, and we are a band that has a profile. But think of the millions and millions of people that can't. You know, we are not the type of band to sit around and wait for somebody else to fucking take a stand on it. So we jumped out at it first. And right. I'm glad we did because if nothing else comes of this, then at least people will have something to debate and maybe they will learn something.
something from it and have some different perspective. All right. Well, uh, that brings us about to the end of episode three of LSQ. Thank you so much for listening. And a major thanks to Britt Daniel of Spoon for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks as well to the good folks over at Silva Artist Management for making that possible. Uh, and thanks in retrospect to Metallica's Lars Ulrich for his candor. Anyway, uh, actually Napster and early streaming services and that kind of thing were my beat at Rolling Stone for a few years around that time. And uh, so I have some extensive interviews with Napster creator Sean Fanning that I do want to share bits of in upcoming episodes of LSQ. There's a lot of stuff from the archives still to digitize, and you know that audio has its hisses and crackles and pops that I hope you'll find to be, you know, part of its charm or something. Plus, next month, the main interview is actually two different interviews separately with Tegan and Sarah. Can't wait for that one. And I've got an interview with Jack Antonoff of Bleachers and Beyond coming up in the next couple of months as well. I'd love to hear your feedback on the LSQ podcast. And, you know, if you have any interest in being part of a street team, I am going to be sending out some stickers and trying to spread the word. So let me know if that appeals to you. You can reach me on Twitter at Jenny LSQ. Don't forget to subscribe and write a review and, you know, do all of the things. And I'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks.